Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. Monique Attinger um, is a certified holistic nutritionist who is a world-renowned expert on the plant compound called oxalate. On social media and on her website, she is known as the Low Ox Coach. She is your partner in reaching your health goals through a focus on reducing oxalate intake in combination with high-density nutrition and targeted nutritional supplements. Welcome to the show, Monique. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Scott. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, awesome. So I, I'd love to start with just hearing your story. Um, the long version is fine. <laughs> and how you kind of got to this place of uh, uh, focusing on oxalates. Okay. Well, yeah, the long version is kind of interesting because I, I basically learned about oxalate because of my young daughter. Um, and at the time, she was about two and a half and was starting to develop issues where she had to pee frequently. She had rashes. She was like, she was very sore. Her private parts were very sore. And I was flummoxed. I thought, you know, it's not my first rodeo. It's my second kid. It doesn't seem to be yeast. It doesn't seem to be these other things. And I was really concerned about her uh, potentially being given, you know, like, some fairly significant drugs in order to try and get something like this under control. And so we had a trusted family naturopathic doctor at the time. We went to him. I explained, you know, the rashes come and go. The symptoms seem to come and go. I don't seem to get ahead of it. I'm not sure what's going on. He asked me a few questions about her diet and he says, I think she's got an oxalate problem. And what I remember is saying, what's an oxalate? <laughs> I had never heard of this thing. And so that really started us on a journey because she was, as I said, about two and a half, sort of pulling into three um, in about four months or so. And like maybe a little stubborn like her mother, maybe maybe a little bit uh, inclined to not want to do something unless there was a good reason. And so I said to her, we're going to do this together and we're going to figure out just how good it is to eat this way. And so I started eating low oxalate. And keep in mind, same trusted naturopathic doctor. And I'd actually been seeing him for a number of years before my daughter was born. And so I start to eat low oxalate and all of a sudden, all of the kinds of issues I'd been having all started to move at the same time and improve. Wow. And I went, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and what were some of those things that you were dealing with? Well, and that's, that's the thing. There were, there were so many unrelated things that it just seemed like I had a lemon for a body. So I was dealing with my thyroid being low. I was dealing with my adrenals being low. I had terrible digestive issues. It seemed like I had to take handfuls of digestive enzymes to, to get my food kind of processed at all. Um, I also had really poor immunity. It didn't seem to matter what I did. 
if my kids came home with the smallest sniffle, I would be down for two or three weeks. Like, and on top of that, I had poor exercise recovery. I had uh, some pain in some joints, which seemed kind of nonspecific. And I would also have like really significant achy muscles. And like between all of those things and low energy on top of that, like any number of diagnoses could have been cobbled together from that combination. Um, and, and they're not necessarily all related to each other. If you've got sore muscles, that doesn't guarantee your thyroid is low. If you've got achy joints, that doesn't mean your digestion's necessarily off. Oh, and I'm not even talking about the insomnia. I had this crazy insomnia. Um, so when my kids started to sleep through the night, instead of being able to celebrate, I was just getting up alone instead of getting up with them. So it wasn't that I couldn't fall asleep. I would fall asleep like almost into a coma. And then I would wake up wide awake in the middle of the night. And, you know, so these were all sorts of things that were going on. And everything I'd tried had worked for a little while, but didn't seem to persist. It was almost like the underlying problem was persistent. And so that's become kind of the hallmark for me when it comes to oxalate, that somebody's doing everything right. I was doing everything right. I was eating, I was eating lots of healthy leafy greens. I was eating, you know, detox supporting beets. I was eating almonds. I was off gluten. I didn't, I didn't do dairy, like all the things that people do. And I was just getting worse. And in fact, at the time when we found the diet, I had gotten to a point where I was very worried that I really did just have a lemon for a body and I wouldn't live to see my kids grow up because I had so many things kind of on a slow simmer. But I was like, at some point, you know, the next straw might be the one that really gives me a big diagnosis. So um, just became fascinated at the fact that we could be so wrong about diet. And this diet for me was life-changing. I mean, I'm very happy that, you know, my daughter is well and my son is well and like that I've got healthy kids. But for me, the life-changing thing was I went from someone who had had kids late in life and thought she wouldn't live to see them grow up to be a woman now in her 60s who's probably in better health than she's been since her 30s. So, you know, that's that's huge. Um, definitely life-changing. And the more I learned about it, the more interested I got, and the more I went down the rabbit hole, the more I read in the research, the more I... Um, dove into helping out on the support groups, the more I got sucked into here. Um, but now this has been about 15 years. So I was one of kind of a group of more early adopters. Um, Susan Owens, whose name you may have heard before, started the Trying Low Oxalate support group. She had an initial group of people who had children who had autism and wanted to try the diet. And, and basically there's a senior administrative team, I guess, around that particular group now where we are quote unquote old timers who have been doing the diet for a long time. And 
you know, in the end for me, I changed my career. I became a nutritionist. It really, it changed my life in all kinds of ways. That's amazing. And um, how did, how did it work for your daughter as well? Well, what, what's really made me very happy is that, you know, she had abdominal pain. Sometimes she had this issue with what looked like developing vulvodynia. She had these rashes. And so at this point in time, she's a typical teen. She'll occasionally cheat with food she probably shouldn't have. But that said, um, you know, she's not got any of those problems. She has no more rashes. She has no more um, issues with vulvodynia. She doesn't have abdominal pain. And so you know, it, for me, it was a really good news story that A, I didn't have a lemon for a body and that B, she didn't have a lemon for a body. I hadn't passed on some lemon genes. It was really a raw materials problem. If you, this is my new, this is my new analogy for this. When we eat, it's not just fuel. We are actually consuming the raw materials that are going to build the structure of our bodies. So you are essentially an independently mobile manufacturing facility who just happens to have uh, emotions and consciousness attached to it. <laughs> and so, you know, really, do you want, a, you know, a vehicle per se that's been built with sub-quality parts? No, you don't, right? So once you start to bring in a really good quality diet, high nutrient, low toxin, then your body can build the kind of body you're supposed to have, right? And so the things that I thought were intractable and were never going to change about me turned out to be very amenable to, to change as long as I gave my body what it really needed. And nobody needs oxalate because it's it's a metabolic end product for us. It's a it's a well, I was going to say toxin, but it's also a metabolic end product that we just get rid of because we have no functional use for it. And and I think that's really where current nutritional advice does everybody a big disservice because we really promote foods that have a lot of oxalate without looking at the impact that oxalate may have and instead just looking at, oh, look at the nutrient density. But it's a, you know, it's a trade-off thing, right? If I'm eating something that's really nutrient dense, but it's full of toxin that's going to make extra work for my body and is going to impact the effectiveness of the tissues that I build, it's that's not a win, right? Go someplace else where it's lower toxin. Yeah. And you can, there are other high nutrient density foods, which don't contain oxalate too. Absolutely. So, I mean, it makes sense that you'd be interested in talking to people about oxalate because oxalate's in plant foods. Yeah. It's, it's not in animal foods. And so you can eat nutrient dense without these kinds of toxins by simply shifting your diet to be more animal-based. And so I don't necessarily say everybody's got to be a carnivore, but I do think that everybody should be thinking seriously about eating a variety of good quality animal products, whole food animal products, because 
you know, those are where you're going to get a lot of nutrient density, good quality materials to build that body with. And you're also eating foods that have essentially zero oxalate. And so that might leave some room for you to have the odd plant and not have your system be overwhelmed because, um, you know, if my experience is any indicator, this stuff does bioaccumulate and then you've got lots of fun going on. And what, for, for those who, um, I've had a lot of podcasts on oxalates, but for those who aren't familiar, what, um, what are some of the basic foods that like lots of people consume that are really high in oxalates? I do actually have a couple of, um, articles that I wrote on my blog, on my website, where I, I set out what I call the oxalate dirty dozen. So if you're familiar with the environmental working group and their dirty dozen, I have a dirty dozen too. And, you know, common foods that we eat, which would be really high in oxalate, spinach. It seems like the world is having a love affair with spinach and it's a dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> So, you know, this is one of those ones where you're really not getting benefit from the food in the way that you might expect, especially when you talk about it being high in minerals like calcium and iron. Um, you know, most of that in spinach is bound to oxalate. You are not going to get use of that. Um, other ones top of my list would be things like almonds and almond flour products. I mean, Almonds are the heavy hitters of the nut world and they are, you know, used for everything now. So you're using almond flour for muffins and you're, you know, eating almonds as snacks and you're drinking almond milk. And, you know, this is a real challenge because a half a cup of something like almond flour will have about 400 milligrams of oxalate. And if you've ever seen those meal size muffins, the chances that those things, especially once they add other nuts, chocolate chips, spices, that that one of those could have 600, 700, 800 milligrams of oxalate when you add it all up. I mean, that's that's not even hard to do. So that's that's got to be the top of my list. But other really challenging ones, rhubarb. Rhubarb is one of the highest oxalate foods you can eat where we still call it food. Honestly you know, loved it when I was a kid, but I remember being warned not to eat the leaves. Well, the leaves are even worse than the stems that we do eat. So rhubarb, beets and beet greens, again, really high oxalate. And people think they support the liver. And here you are on this treadmill where the liver may be trying to get sulfate, pulling oxalate into it, causing you more problems. Um, Swiss chard, um, some of the gluten-free alternatives outside of almonds like teff or buckwheat or quinoa, these are all really high. Um, a lot of the spices can pack a lot of punch. So there's been this uh, obsession with turmeric and adding turmeric to different kinds of drinks. It just makes me shudder. Every teaspoon of turmeric is about 50 milligrams of oxalate. I just don't. Uh, cinnamon's another bad one. Um, and then, you know, things like French fries, where we're often using varieties of potatoes that are quite high in oxalate. 
And then we substitute the healthier sweet potato for the regular potato and the sweet potatoes got just as much oxalate as the potato. So, you know, things like potatoes are staples. A lot of these leafy greens might be staples in people's diets. Um, you know, even kale can be a, a relatively heavy hitter. And that's another one that the world seems to be having a love affair with. So there's there's a fair number of things where we could really be getting a lot more oxalate than we think. And those are only the big guys. One step down from them, there's all kinds of other things that we could be eating. And it just, it adds up in a day. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're totally right that a lot of these are touted as like superfoods or health foods. And um, it's crazy how much oxalate they contain. And I want to talk a little bit about um, your work in the uh, low ox groups and yeah. also as a coach. What do you do with someone? How do you help someone when they're coming to you for the first time? Um, they may not know what oxalates are. They may, they may, um, and they just have a lot of different chronic conditions or health disorders that they, they feel like they've tried everything for. Where do you start with them? It's first, the first part of the process is really figure out where they are kind of on the playing field. There's nothing like a single protocol here because people can be coming to this from so many different directions. And unlike, you know, unlike something where you have like a, a diagnostic kind of capacity because it's a single system in the body or it's a single set of symptoms. Um, oxalate is so broad in how it could be impacting us. And that really depends on where our bodies have trafficked it. And that can de depend on both our health history, as well as our genetics, as well as how high oxalate our diet's been, um, how committed we were to getting really extra healthy by eating extra. Oh, and I should say chocolate. Before I let all those people off the hook who love dark chocolate, I'm really sorry. I know nobody loves me for this one, but um, another really high oxalate thing. So, so it really depends on how they've leaned into high oxalate foods as to where they're at. I will also look at how significant their symptoms are um, and, and really how resilient they are. So are they currently feeling like they're able to handle their life or are they feeling like they're a bit overwhelmed just trying to do regular everyday tasks? So those kinds of things will make a difference because then I'm going to think about how slowly we need to move. And if somebody's been eating a really high oxalate diet for a long time, their body's developed a kind of homeostasis based on X amount of oxalate coming in every day. And in the same way that an alcoholic can develop tolerance to alcohol, it's almost like we have a kind of tolerance, not necessarily a functional kind of tolerance, but more the body just stops sending out the danger signals every time it's coming in. However, as we change that homeostasis, then we need to do that at a pace that somebody can handle. 
Because the problem with oxalate is that it's toxic when it goes in. But our health may be a lot better at the time when it starts going in than our health is at the time when we notice there's a problem. So then we're really going to see it on the way out because we are more compromised than we were at the beginning. So I started probably eating a pretty high oxalate diet in my late 20s, early 30s. I didn't notice oxalate on its way in kicking my butt. I assure you at 48, when it was leaving, I really noticed. And so I'll put together a game plan with people where we're going to bring down oxalate slowly and whatever sources they might have, which may include certain kinds of supplements, which may be higher oxalate too. And, and also at the same time, be trying to put certain basics in place so that if oxalate's leaving the body, given the kinds of things that that molecule does, we will build a toolkit of ways to respond to symptoms and also kind of prepare them for the kinds of stressors they'll have as it goes. Yeah, I can tell you've helped a lot of people because you, the way you describe the process and um, they're not being like a cookie cutter template or anything like that. And you really have to start with where people are. It, it shows that you have a lot of experience helping people. Well, this one, because there can be so many different kinds of symptoms going on and because, you know, honestly, some people, by the time they find somebody like me are very sick because they've done, they've been doing everything right for decades. They've seen people who have suggested really high oxalate foods. Um, you know, they've been good clients. They've tried to do these things that have been suggested. And so it's, it really has to be nuanced. If, if somebody goes to someone and that person says, okay, we're just going to cut all the high oxalate diet uh, foods out of your diet. And you're going to be eating, let's say, oh, anything under hundred milligrams would be an improvement from somebody who's coming from like 1500. But the problem with that is that drop is really precipitous. There's some kind of signaling in the body which has not been characterized by anybody as far as I know, which allows the body to see that oxalate's either dropping in the gut or dropping in the bloodstream. And then the body will start to respond to that by mobilizing oxalate. You do too big a drop. And as somebody who did that, because 15 years ago, we didn't know what we know now about what's happening when people drop oxalate. If you drop precipitously like that, you can end up in the ER with stuff going on. And I did once, and that was an unpleasant experience. And in my case, it drove um, like a, a kind of blood pressure spike, which almost felt at the same time like I was having an allergic reaction to something. So I get into the hospital and my blood pressure was 230 over 130. Wow. Yeah. And this is the middle of the night. And no, I haven't been running a marathon. And, you know, um, and I was 
pretty sure it was Oxley, but that's a pretty intimidating kind of experience. So um, it was an interesting experience in the long run because mostly what they did was actually give me some medications which turned out to do things like stabilize mast cells and at that point in time we didn't know that oxalate had anything to do with mast cells but we now know that oxalate can drive the inflammasome and if it sets up the inflammasome and the mast cells become more reactive you can have symptoms which are being driven kind of indirectly from oxalate as opposed to a straight on inflammatory kind of uh, symptom. So we now know a little bit more, but boy, would I love to get the attention of some researchers who could, you know, do, do some uh, work to look at what's really going on here. But the lack of interest in what the you know, what the oxalate molecule is doing outside the kidney is profound. I'm surprised that everybody thinks it's it's all fun and games until you have, you know, kidney function failing. And then we'll start to track it in the rest of the body. And, oh, look where it is. But up until that point, there's a complete, you know, it, it's like dead air. It's nobody's paying any attention there. Yeah. And... Um, that transition phase, I, I've heard so many people talk about it and it's, it seems very important. How, how can someone know like how fast to transition or, um, like what points to transition to along the way? This is really one of those places where I think we're learning more and more over time. But one of the things after my own experience with dropping too precipitously is I started to tell people, come down 5 to 10% at a time. The higher your intake, the more likely you should come down 5%. And so if somebody came to me and they were uh, consuming something like 500 milligrams of oxalate a day, and I hesitate to use the word eat because we're not getting benefit from it. So we'll say consume. <laughs> if they're taking in that kind of level of oxalate, they may be able to come down 10%. So that would be maybe 50 milligrams of oxalate each time you drop. Maybe you do that every one to two weeks. And if you see anything negative, you either hang out where you are or even go back up a 50 milligram jump. Um, and just do that really nice and slow. And as you come into sort of the textbook definition of a low oxalate diet, which is around 50 milligrams, then maybe you're dropping 20 or 25 at a time, right? So I think it's got to be a lot more nuanced than people have considered. But if I've got a client who's really sky high, then I may, you know, consider something that I refer to as the wave, which is they drop uh, a little bit and then a little bit and then a little bit and then bounce back up and then drop and drop and drop and bounce back up so that maybe I take them from their initial oxalate level. I'll pull a number, 1500 milligrams. So maybe I have them go um, 1400, 1300, 1200, 1400, 1300, 1200, because we keep the body having to pay attention. I think of it almost like mixing up exercises for the muscles. We don't want the body to start to go, oh, I've dropped this much. 
And it's just going to be like that all the time. We want the body to be on its toes and pay attention. And so the higher somebody's been, the more likely I'm going to give them this wave formation and and try to stabilize them at a certain level, which will become their top end level and then have these drops. And then maybe we do that four or five times before we drop them again. So that if day one's 14, day two's 13, day three is 12, 100 milligrams, that they do that two or three times and then their top day becomes 1300. And then, and so we just sort of keep them going up and down, but the overall trend is towards less. And for some people that can work really well. Um, and then the other instance is somebody's taking in a high amount of oxalate, but they're reacting to their diet every day. I may drop them a fair bit, stabilize them at that lower level, and then do that same kind of wave, but low enough that their body's able to get rid of more of it at a time because they've been reacting every day. So it it really can vary as to where people are. And then I try to make it as uncomplicated as possible. Like help people with diet plans, help people with recipes that they can use, give them ideas of, oh, let's get you to recipes that are giving you a baseline of say 250 milligrams of oxalate. And these are the things that you add in on a day to make your oxalate higher. And then we're going to just peel out the add-ins until we get to the baseline diet. And then we're going to do it again. So, you know, I've come up with more and more tools over time to try and make things less complicated because honestly, people were doing things like, oh, all the biggest offenders in my diet are like I did. I dropped almonds, spinach, beets, and chard, and I was eating two or three of those things every day. Well, that was like about a thousand milligrams of oxalate. It just would disappeared. It's not surprising I had some rough runs there. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. And um, what's what are some of the best resources for folks to figure out like how much oxalate they're intaking, um, and get a sense of like how much oxalate are in different foods? I would say of the resources out there, the one I trust the best is the one that the Triangle Oxalate Support Group has. Now, is it the simplest tool in the world? No, but that's actually one of the reasons I like it. And I also know the researcher who's doing the testing for the group. So I trust that this, um, you know, doctor who has worked and published in the Oxlate field is, you know, doing a good job on the research and doing a good job on the testing because he's got a history of that's his research area has been testing different levels of oxalate for intake. Um, we also, through the Triangle Oxalate Support Group, maintain thousands of lines of data on different foods. And I don't see anybody else doing that. Um, and we test some of the, you know, processed foods that people are using you know, bread, crackers, pasta, sauces, things that families will have had in their diet so that they can understand, oh, when I was eating that, that gives me about this much oxalate. And, 
you know, it just gives us a chance to sort of peg them um, because they may not have been eating the same amount of oxalate every day. They may have been going up and down. So if somebody can give me th even three or four days of their diet, I can say, okay, you're, you're doing approximately this on a daily basis. And that may be where I stabilize them because they've been going up and down. And so that might be, that might be the kind of level. So if they join a place like the Triangle Oxalate Support Groups, um, they'll be able to get access to that spreadsheet. And there are people like me who actually still volunteer on the group and try to pay forward um, basically the support that we got when we needed it. That's great. Yeah, I think the that group and then folks like yourself to give more personalized um, guidance are, are wonderful resources. And you've been in this in the oxalate world for um, over a decade now. What are some of the things that you've continued to learn, things that you've changed your mind on or have surprised you um, in the world of oxalates? That's a really good question. Uh, because when I initially learned about oxalate, I just assumed oxalate was the problem and nothing else. And what we've learned over time is that there are other factors in the body that can affect trafficking. So that includes both the kinds of substrates that are moved by cell transporters and how those cell transporters may be affected by your genetics, none of which was on my radar at all when I started. But the other thing that's really changed is that we, we've started to understand and recognize why people who are reducing oxalate may find themselves having histamine issues or find themselves having salicylate issues. And so the more we learn about how oxalate is working in the body and what functions it tangles with and disrupts, then the better we can, we can help people who are going through the process. So some people may temporarily see um, a histamine intolerance kind of issue, or maybe even a mast cell kind of issue. That's not a surprise to me at this point. And, you know, it's that kind of greater complexity where they might need somebody like me in order to, to kind of handle these other complexities in which supplements can be helpful and, and those kinds of things, because it really isn't one size fits all. Like, you know, other any other diet you can think of, say a, hist, a a lowering histamine diet, you don't have to worry about nuancing your histamine down. Drop that stuff out of your diet right away. There's there's no downside to that, right? But here you have this funny thing with oxalate where it can be impacting other things in the body and how things are functioning and you know what kinds of issues you might be having with other foods and and honestly. One of the things I read recently, and I have to find the paper that I found it in because it was a throwaway sentence in the middle of the paper somewhere, but it was that cytokines, neurotransmitters, and hormones all affect how oxalate gets trafficked. And I was like, oh wow. my goodness. Because yeah. like which cytokines, which hormones, where, you know, what about oxalate? Like there is so much we need to know there. So some of it, um, people are learning as they do this journey. And in some cases with people like me who say, oh, you've got that symptom and that happened when you took this supplement. So what could that be? And then 
you know, start to try and find the things that connect those dots. But um, yeah, again, I'm back to would I love to find a researcher who would be happy to pick my brain and decide on some studies? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, what are you hopeful for in the future for for um, the world of oxalates? Um, thinking about, uh, you mentioned some of it there regarding research, but what else are you looking forward to? I'm really looking forward to people being able to dodge this bullet. We are all doing our best with our nutritional understanding wherever we're at. Um, but I think that a lot of people are not being served by the kinds of standardized uh, suggestions that we're getting. And, and there are so many people so wedded to the idea that certain foods are high nutrient. When in my books now, I'd say too much toxin for not enough gain. And so what I would love to see is more of this kind of discussion where we're saying, essentially, let's do a cost benefit kind of thing for foods, right? And that would automatically dump some of the problems like almonds and spinach to the bottom of the heap in terms of choices, as opposed to being at the top. And, and that alone would do so much because I don't think that we have to be in a position where people who are doing everything they can to get healthier are not getting healthier. I think diet is, I, I, what I would love is for it to be recognized as the huge lever that it really is. I thought I had a lemon for a body. I thought I had bequeathed that to my kids. I thought I'd die young. I mean, I've gone back to do things like karate, to work out in the fitness club. My trainer has me doing Romanian deadlifts. I'm 62. I am not a 20-year-old, right? But I have energy. I have vitality. I have, and when I look at my compatriots in my age range, they're not necessarily feeling vital. They're not necessarily having a lot of energy. They are taking one or more prescriptions. They have arthritis. They have all kinds of things. What if these are not diseases of aging, but are diseases of our diet? Changing my diet changed my life. And so what I'd say is if you've been changing your diet and you're not getting better, please consider maybe trying reducing oxalate, trying to make your diet more nutrient dense and, you know, see what happens because we can do so much better than this. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And Monique, what are some of your goals for um, your own practice and helping people with low oxalate and growing that? Well, that's a really interesting question. One of the things I'm doing is trying to put more information up on YouTube. So I understand not everybody can afford to work one-on-one -on -one with somebody like me. Um, so 
I've been looking at sort of a stair step approach. How can people come in at different levels where they can afford? So I now have my own YouTube channel and I'm also involved with a group of the senior admin team from the Triangle Oxlates group. And we have called ourselves the Wizards of Ox. And we also have a YouTube channel. And I think the advantage of my own is that I have my own kind of focus. And the advantage of this group of four, um, four women who are also all long-term, um, you know, involved with the low oxalate diet is that you get these different perspectives between the four of us. So I'm participating in both of those things. Uh, I also have a Patreon group. So that allows people to sort of subscribe to information from me, but do it at different levels based on what they can afford. And I do spend time there answering questions to make sure that if somebody's investing some in me, which helps because I have to keep reading, I have to keep doing all kinds of stuff in order to build my own knowledge, then I'm going to invest back in them. So that group is is my is one of my favorite projects at the moment. I am looking at online courses that would be available for people to do self-study. So I'm I'm in the process of that. And I love doing group coaching. So I haven't done that for a while, but hopefully um, in the next probably six to eight weeks, I'll be doing another group coaching. And I may be doing that with another professional who specializes in the interstitial cystitis world, who recognized that oxalate was huge for her. So Mandy LaGreca and I have run a number of these group coaching sessions. And because she brings a different perspective, I find it great. I don't think people all have to be doing it exactly the same way. And then I am going to keep doing one-on-one -on -one work because people sometimes need a nuanced approach. They need, they need, you know, recipes and tools and supplements, but sometimes they also just need handholding because this can be a scary process if you're really sick. And so I will always continue to do the one-on-one -on -one as well. And hopefully at some point I too might be writing a book and Again, I think that the field is open to having different perspectives and 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 different ways of expressing the information because I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to hear more than one person talk about a topic for me to sort of formulate like that bigger context and a you know a more rounded, uh, concept and and so I'm I'm planning on sort of a, a pragmatist kind of approach because that's me I I think of myself as the rubber meets the road gal I I like to be hands on and you know getting right into the to the challenges and the issues so um, those are the kinds of things I'm looking at at this point to grow my practice. Uh, because I probably should be thinking about retiring at some point, but it doesn't look like it's anywhere near on the on the on the horizon. I love what I do too much, so yeah. I keep telling my husband I'm on the Freedom eighty five plan. <laughs> yeah, you seem incredibly passionate about all this, Monique, and it, I think it's so great that you found all these different ways to help people and engage um, with with the low oxalate community, which is 
tremendous. Um, it's really inspiring. Um, this has been great, fantastic speaking with you. Really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I'll have links to your website and your social media in the show notes. But uh, if there's anything else you want to leave listeners with, uh, go ahead. Well, you know, um, I do really, I'm really focused on how to make this more accessible for people and not so expensive. And so um, I'll probably uh, get to you, Scott, a couple of things that might help people. One is if you like certain spices like the dreaded turmeric or cinnamon, which is one of my favorites, um, there are ways to be able to get that flavor and not have the oxalate. And usually those are extracts. And so I'm working with a company out of the UK who has these extract drops and they're lovely, really fresh spice taste. And I have a discount code, so I'll, I'll make sure that you get that. And I also have a discount code for people who like to take their supplements as plain powders. I often find that clients can dodge issues with starting a supplement if they're taking it not in a capsule where there's additives and things that may have been needed for encapsulation or tableting. And so sometimes plain powders can be really helpful. So for people who um, may have a little more, uh, say, background and can, can make use of some of these kinds of tools, then I have a discount code that they can use and I'll get a small commission as well. And so I love these, everybody wins things. <laughs> awesome. Great. Well, I'll certainly have links to all of that in the show notes and thank you again for your time, Monique. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. Have a great day. You too. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered? Or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CarnivoreCast or go to CarnivoreCast.com. You can also email me at info at CarnivoreCast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.